I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. fiction nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. Sugi, if you could be anywhere in the world right now with a book in one hand and a drink in the other, where would you be? What book would you be reading? And what would be your drink of choice? I think... That was such a good question. I uh, I would be in Sri Lanka drinking a cocktail with bourbon and passion fruit, dr- reading, I think, Yi and Lee's new novel, um, which I'm really excited to pick up. Uh, must I go? How about you? Did you hear the dog scraping around in her cage when I was asking you that question? I didn't, but I'm very excited to talk on the podcast about the fact that we both have pandemic dogs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave that in. Fine. Whatever. <laughs> it's the Here truth. Here is what I have been doing. I was on a ranch in Wyoming. This is a hat I bought in Juarez in like the 80s when I was actually a ranch hand. My family, my collected family of 14 people found a a ranch in rural Wyoming that we were able to rent out for totally reasonable. Like this is not a fancy deal, except for the ranch itself is really fancy. And like about the same price that it would cost to stay at a, you know, regular hotel in a medium-sized city for each person. And we have been there for a week. And I would have, I, I should have been reading your book. I'm waiting to get a copy. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it is a little too early to pretend that I'm still in Wyoming. Although if anybody wants to see pictures of that place, you can go to my Instagram account. And then you too can feel horribly envious as I did. Hey, I'm sorry. We did a good job for once. It was just cruel. It was cruel. It was cruel. But the thought is perfect to lead us into today's topic, which is summer reading. 
Uh, not the required curriculum you dread in middle school, which my, my both of my sons were dealing with, one of my sons in high school, but the books we can't seem to put down and topics we can't seem to stop talking about while in the fifth month of our staycation. Later in the show, we'll be join, joined by poet Jaswinder Bellina. But first, we're happy to be joined once more by Margot Livesey, author of Boy in the Field, which is her latest novel. Margot is the New York Times bestselling author of the novels The Flight of Gemma Hardy, The House on Fortune Street, Banishing Verona, Eva Moves the Furniture, The Missing World, Criminals, and Homework. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Vogue, and The Atlantic, and she's a recipient of grants from the NEA and the Guggenheim Foundation. The House on Fortune Street won the 2009 L.L. Winship Penn New England Award. Born in Scotland, Margot currently lives in the Boston area and is a professor of fiction at the Iowa Writers Workshop and our pal. We're happy to see her. Thank you so much, Sugi and Wit. It's lovely to be in your company again. Welcome back. Uh, not too long ago, the quintessential summer book was also called A Beach Read. I guess it's still called that. I don't know. The New York Times Book Review would have like a do a summer issue. There'd be sand. There'd be shells. You know, there were books that these and these were books that you literally designed to read on the beach on vacation. They were designed to take you away from reality, from politics, from the sordidness of your real life. But nobody can go to the beach thanks to the pandemic. And there is no escape from politics or the sordidness of real life these days, it feels like. So what is a summer book in 2020? I am probably a really bad judge of this as someone who read all of Middlemarch on the beach. Um, but... When I saw this question, I thought, I'll go and look this up, you know, when in doubt, do research. And a beach read seemed to be Tayari Jones and American Marriage is a beach read. Uh, Pride and Prejudice is a beach read. Uh, Normal People by Sally Rooney is a beach read. So the idea of a beach read seems flexible and all-embracing, but I think something like... um, Night by Eli Wiesel is not a beach read by <laughs> by definition. <laughs> that things that are too tragic or too real or too deprived are not what people think of when they think of as a beach read. What do you think a beach read is, Sugi? The last book that I remember specifically reading on a beach is The Mothers by Britt Bennett. Um, and I was in San Diego and... I have a very specific memory of reading it on a beach. Um, and it was sort of, I mean, it's a, it's a serious book, but it was sort of perfect also because I was in the setting or near the setting that I was reading about and the description sort of seemed uh, beautifully right on. And, um, and it was a book that I was just, it was a, it's a page turner. So when I think of beach reads, I guess, I mean, I also, I suppose, have a very expansive definition, though. You know, when I was thinking about what I would read on the beach, I was sort of like, oh, I, you know, I started Milkman by Anna Burns and I haven't finished it. And I really want to go back to that. <laughs> That's not light reading. So um, I don't know. Sometimes in the sunshine is, I think, the best time to go into the dark places. What, are you, what do you read on the beach, Wit? Well, I, I mean, I right now, we just talked a little bit in the intro about well, what I've been reading, but I sort of... I guess I have, I, I totally agree for us, like, you know, uh, uh, books that are political in some sense or about serious issues can be beach reads. I mean, I think of like, you know, The Bonfire of the Vanities was a hugely popular book that everybody read at a certain point in time or 
Curtis Sittenfeld's book, uh, Rodham, when we had her on the show recently, or Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, which I don't know, Margaret, do you have her as a student at Iowa? Isn't she an Iowa grad? I sadly did not have the good fortune to teach Kylie, but I think her book is a fantastic example of a book that's really entertaining in the best sense and readable, but asks quite serious questions at the same time. I also just want to give a shout out to what I feel like were maybe the like beach reads of yesteryear, which are the books that I remember being on the shelves of like various places that we rented when I was a kid, when we went to the beach, you know, that, that people would leave behind. So like books by Ken Follett, you know, or stuff like that, right? You know, thrillers, big fat thrillers that are kind of, it seems like they're about politics, but really, of course, they're not. They're just, they're, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of other, you know, books that I would put in that, in that genre. Um, but those are the ones that I, anything by Michener? Yes, I was going to say Michener seems the perfect example. Yeah. Those big chubby books. And I sort of have a fondness for those big, fat, weird books that I would never read at any other time in my life or for any other reason that you find in like beach places, you know. It's funny to think about maybe those beach house shelves as the original little free libraries. Right. You know, I think about um, I remember maybe very early on, I recorded an episode of the podcast from the Vermont Studio Center. And I was so delighted to go into this visiting writer apartment and find this shelf that had been left by visiting writers of the past. Um, And you're reminding me also when you're talking about those big fat books, I think I read The Prince of Tides in a summer um, on a, on a summer day. And it felt like a summer, like that's sort of one of those expansive baggy books with a strong sense of place and you're in a great place, but you're somehow also escaping to this other one or, or Grisham, I suppose. I recently rewatched the firm and was remembering having read the book, um, also in the summer when I was like maybe 10 or 11 and thinking, wow, this is so exciting. What a, what a, it's nice to sit here on the beach, but also, um, you know, or sit in, in my backyard, but have this um, kind of like tightly paced, tightly paced thing that, um, that you can enjoy. And then I feel like I also like to reread in the summer. Like, do you go back and revisit your nostalgia reads in the summer? I, I do, although often I'm spending the summer in Britain and then I see it as my time to catch up on what's been published there and what's coming out there. So um, I think autumn is actually my time for rereading. Um, the season of mists and mellow fruitfulness is when I go back to things. And recently I've been on a Willa Cather spree. So I've been reading some of the books I already read and some of the ones I hadn't. So if you were going to a rental property, but in the UK, would you, I mean, you know, they're not going to have Ken Follett or like Tom Clancy. They might have Sue Monk Kidd. I was thinking about Sue Monk Kidd would be another person that I would think of in that group. Like we had her on the show recently. Um, But would you find different books in like a British seaside cottage? Um, you would probably find um, Agatha Christie, uh, Rex Stout, um, Inspector Morse novels, um, Nagayo, Nagayo Marsh, I forget how to say his name, um, those kinds of books. And then certain kinds of, kind of, I, I hate the expression, but chiclet, sort of cozy books about young women finding finding romance in unexpected places and but keeping all their clothes on for <laughs> throughout the novel <laughs> 
So as we're talking about this, I can't help but think that, you know, we're in this era that's inescapably political. Isn't it important to have these forms of entertainment that aren't political? Not that we're escaping or ignoring, but kind of affirming that all of these politics are in pursuit of this kind of deep enjoyment of the small things in life. If we're fighting Trump's insanity all the time, it's hard to think about the passage of time and the moral relationships among siblings, the way normal everyday lies rather than the huge world altering lies that we are now hearing from the administration can affect our lives too. Uh, and Trump or no, I mean, those things don't go away. Our, our regular lives are going on in the background as well. Yeah, I, 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 yes, I feel very uncertain about how to use the term. I mean, both how to use the term beach read and also how to use the term a political novel. Uh, I mean, the novel is deeply committed to the individual. So even something like George Orwell's 1984, I mean, what we we remember in the novel is Winston and Julia and the fact that O'Brien's betrayal is a particularly personal one. Um, So... Yeah, I, I'm a little sketchy about what really counts as a as a political novel. You would see, particularly in the 80s, uh, Toni Morrison novels at, at beach uh, houses. You, those Because she was just so popular, everyone was reading her, and that you would always find those books there. Um, anyway, the last time you were on the podcast, we had you talk about the idea of moral weakness, and we'll post a link to that to that interview. Um, in reference to the characters in your last novel, Mercury, and also in reference to actors in our current political scene, Mercury touched on gun control. It was, like many of your books, engaged in the current political scene. But The Boy in the Field, which is your new novel that we're going to talk to you about now, is set in 1999, another century, literally, and it feels in some ways separated, in a good way, from our current politics. Was this a deliberate choice? It was a very deliberate choice. I remembered that feeling that we had in 1999 where people thought, Y2K, where people thought planes were going to fall out of the skies, all computers would crash, everything would go up in flames. We, We were looking for danger, but we were looking in the wrong direction, it turned out. And I really like that that sense of of menace, um, of suspicion. Um, I also, I felt, um, needed two things to make my plot work. My plot is about three teenagers, and I wanted them to have more autonomy than teenagers sometimes do now, and I wanted them not to have mobile phones, um, as teenagers often do now. So... I, I really needed for several reasons to go back into another century. There is that scene early on in the book where one of the one of the boys has to hail someone to, to to say there's been an emergency and he has to run out to a road and like stop a car and the car has to drive back to town and call someone. I'm like, oh, that that was what meant to me, told me that it was an early, even though it says the date right up front, but that, that was meaningful, you know, that little moment. Yeah, those, those days when phones were tethered to one place and you had to go to the phone rather than the phone come to you. So, Margo, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the remarkable opening scene of the book, which really defines and changes all of the characters in the story. Was that the kind of the starting point for your imagining the book or was there some other trigger that came before that scene? That was the starting point for me. I, um, I went, after I published a, a novel called The Flight of Gemma Hardy, an old school friend got in touch, or maybe an old school acquaintance whom I hadn't seen in 
I don't know, over 30 years maybe. And he described, he was at, I went to a girls' school and he was at the adjacent boys' school. He described coming home one afternoon to the tiny village where he lived on a summer afternoon, uh, a village where no one locked their doors or even thought about crime and finding uh, the body of a young woman who'd been killed at the bottom of his garden. And he was probably in the presence of the body for less than 15 seconds, but it made a profound impression on him. And he, he talked a little bit about that, about how his life had sort of jumped the tracks, as it were, gone in a very different direction. And that really stayed in my imagination but and it also chimed with something that I was feeling increasingly indignant about namely how many thrillers and detective stories begin with the body of a young woman and so I very deliberately wanted to subvert that trope by having my body be the body of of, of a boy and um, to have him not be fatally wounded uh, he recovers fairly quickly from his injuries. Have either of you ever like seen a dead body, like in like, not other than a relative who's died or someone dying in the hospital, but out in the world? I have not. I have, although it's a very the one that I remember. I'm wondering if there are others, but there was a very specific instance when I was a kid in a science class and was taken by a science teacher to go see a cadaver at Georgetown University. And that cadaver is the cadaver in everything I ever write. It's always, um, and yeah, I, it has sometimes prompted people to sort of ask me if I went to med school or something. And I'm like, no, I had, I had 15 seconds with this one guy um, when I was 16. But it, it did make this deep impression on me. And Margot, as you're talking, I also can't help but remember that Whitney and I had um, a remarkable essayist, um, Alice Bolin, on the show, who uh, wrote a book called Dead Girls, um, which was in some ways about this trope and which was so interesting and, um, yeah, to think about, I don't know, I, um, my partner watches a lot of kind of what we call, um, our nickname for them is sort of, it's because so many of them are Scandinavian, the ones that are sort of on streaming, you know, and things like that. We call them Johan von McMurderschgold shows. And I never want to watch the Johan von McMurderschgold shows because I basically, my tolerance for visual violence is extremely low. Um, but then, you know, every once in a while, I'll sort of pass through the room and, and realize, um, you know, oh, my goodness, you know, it's, it is always a woman. It's always a woman on TV. And so this was such an interesting flipping of that. And then I also want to talk about um, we were talking just just now about lies. And one of the siblings in the novel, Zoe, becomes obsessed with the role that lying plays in our everyday lives. Um, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about Zoe as a character and read a section about her. Zoe is the middle child. Um, Matthew, her older brother, uh, there's Matthew, Zoe and Duncan. Um, Matthew, the oldest, um, he sets out after finding the boy in the field, he sets out to try to find the boy's assailant. And the novel follows his quest as he tries to be an amateur detective. Zoe sets out on a very different kind of quest. Her life too jumps the rails and she uh, she really wants to be her own person. I, I'm not sure I like that phrase, but she doesn't want to be a, a daughter or a sister or perhaps even a friend. She wants to be Zoe and she's looking for someone 
who will see her in that way. And that leads her to wander the streets of Oxford. The novel is set in and around Oxford and um, look for look for a man, perhaps, who will who will see her. Um, and uh, she has a, a boyfriend who accuses her of being a terrible liar. I don't mean bad at lying, I mean <laughs> lying too much. And her response is to make a suggestion to her siblings about that. And I'm just going to read that section. Um, after supper, as they did the washing up, Zoe suggested that the three of them make a pact not to lie for a week. She'd been mulling the idea since Antony called her a liar. She expected Matthew to laugh and say, weird. Instead, he looked up from the frying pan he was scrubbing and asked, what counts as a lie? Mum's always talking about how easy it is to manipulate witnesses. If you ask how fast the car was going when it hit the wall, people say, oh, 20 miles per hour. If you ask how fast it was going when it smashed into the wall, they say 45 miles per hour. But those people don't know they're lying. Duncan dried a spatula. It's more like they're colorblind. I'm not asking you to testify in court, Zoe said. She said, she slid a plate into the dishwasher. I'm suggesting we try not to tell deliberate lies. So, Matthew rinsed the pan. If Benjamin asks what I think of his new song, do I say I can't stand it? Or can I say I like broken to the bone better? Both are true, but the first is truer. Isn't lying better than hurting Benjamin's feelings, Duncan said. They both looked at Zoe. How can you call yourself friends, she said, if you can't tell each other the truth? Even as she spoke, she remembered telling her friend, Moira, that she looked fantastic in her new skirt. By Monday evening, Duncan had declared a ban on questions. If you ask a question, he said, people ask one back, then you're stuck. The pact was hardest for him, Zoe thought, because he was the most truthful. You don't have to do this, she said. It's just something I need to prove to myself. I know that, he said, but it's interesting. I can see why there are monks who never speak. Zoe had already upset most of her friends when on Wednesday the, bi the biology teacher called her and Frances, who sat in the next desk, up to the front. With her fuchsia lipstick and sleek hair, Miss Haley was one of the few teachers it was easy to imagine having a life outside of school. It's not surprising you both got the right answers, she said, looking from Zoe to Frances and back again. But it seems very strange that you made the same mistakes. I wasn't copying, said Zoe. May I be excused? At lunchtime, Neither Frances nor her friends would speak to her. Even her friend Moira didn't understand. You mean you told on Frances because of some stupid pact? I didn't say anything about her. By Thursday, Matthew and Benjamin had argued about a point in fencing. Duncan had told Will that a TV programme he liked was stupid. They agreed to abandon the pact. I don't believe anyone always tells the truth, said Duncan. 
It's too hard. The idea that everyone was lying some of the time made the world feel slippery and unsafe. But the experiment had worked. Zoe knew now that Antony was wrong. She was just an ordinary liar, nothing special. Even Duncan had to make small adjustments in order not to be driven out of town. The next day, she discovered one of her father's adjustments. She was at the chemist's buying shampoo when the cashier asked if she'd collect his photographs. She put the envelope in her bag and forgot about it until she came across it that evening. What impulse made her open it? The first photo was of a sunset over the sea, the second of a woman standing on the beach, laughing, her hair blowing in the wind, her jeans rolled up. The photographer's shadow lay at her feet. Zoe recognised the beach. It was in Wales, near the cottage they sometimes borrowed from friends. And she recognised the woman. One afternoon last spring, when she and Moira were shopping in Oxford, she had seen her leaving a cafe with her father. She was tall, as tall as Hal, wearing a black t-shirt with a pullover slung around her shoulders, jeans and running shoes. She was saying something to him, smiling, and he was smiling back. Oh, thank you very much. Um, it enrages me the way that the president lies uh, and his lies about COVID, lies about his own racism, and yet the lies being discussed here are not like the president's lies. These siblings are sort of feeling their way through the world, trying to develop their own sense of morality in a way that's very similar to what my two sons are doing right now. Um, it's as if the book is reminding me to stop and look at my children and look at the life happening ineluctably around me outside of the political sphere, a life that because of Twitter and because you feel like I have to refute these lies that are happening all the time, you sort of ignore and forget. Um, are there books, and that's the way the book affected me, which I thought was wonderful. Um, are there books in your past that affected you this way? Well, I should say to begin with that when you asked about the inspiration or the origin of the boy in the field, I, I gave one origin story. But a second origin story would be to say that I was very aware of the Parkland shootings, of Greta Thunberg, of the role that young people were taking in stepping forward to try to change things and stepping forward to say, no, we're not going to compromise. There, there is a right and a wrong and we're, we're choosing right. And uh, I was channeling that in some ways in writing about three younger characters. I think for me, a book that made me feel what you just described, Wit, was Jane Eyre. Uh, Jane is a very truthful character and she often gets in trouble for, for telling the truth. And that just struck me as terribly unfair and indeed enraging. And I still uh, have that feeling when I reread the novel. And yet, that's very accurate. I mean, it's enraging, but it also seems like a thing that's now going on. Um, I love Jane Eyre. It's interesting because Jane Eyre is kind of like a book, and I think this is generally true. This was a, a thing that I was thinking about when I was preparing for this, that some books you might have read at one time and thought, well, that's not really a political book. And then, but, but you know, Jane Eyre feels like a very political book now, you know, uh, and so that's interesting to me. 
No, completely. And I love that um, people are rejecting Susan B. Anthony being pardoned. I mean, I was, if you think about Jane Eyre at the time that the book was being written, I mean, women were property. I mean, almost all women were property. And they couldn't own anything in their in their own names. Nothing was separate from their husbands. And so Jane Eyre, I mean, the way she comes into her own money and is only then able to reach out to Rochester it seems very, very significant. There is that moment in your book where I can't remember which one of the children is saying, well, the person who's committed this act, can they be... Why are they not arrested? Can they just be walking around? Why have they not, you know, like the children are asking, what, how, how is the legal system allowed to let this person be free? They don't have an answer for them. Um, and that seems to me related in some ways to what you were just talking about. Yes. I mean, I think one of the reasons detective fiction is so popular is because it enshrines a morality of right and wrong. When you start a detective novel, you're 99% confident that the bad guy will be caught and that virtue will triumph. There may not be redemption or reparation, but but good will be victorious. And I think that's very, very alluring. And But the reality, of course, is very different. And my three siblings, my three teenagers are, are grappling with the fact that life is not like a detective story, that good doesn't necessarily triumph. And that terrible things can be concealed. You can do something terrible and no one can tell. And I think that's really, really upsetting. It is really upsetting. And I think it also, it makes me interested in the question. Um, and Caitlin Greenidge, who was on our last episode, was writing about this a little bit in her new Substack about sort of the narrative forms that we lean towards and the ways in which they're inadequate for the kinds of outcomes that you're describing, right? Like the traditional... I'm being very reductive here, right? Like traditional Western narratives interested in individualism, redemption, all of this sort of classic um, ways in which things might turn out in a way that we feel very comfortable with. Thinking but about, isn't that what a beach read's supposed to be, Suki? It's supposed to be the thing where you get the thing that you want. I, you know, like, so does that mean that Margot can't be a beach read? She's off the ledger? I don't think her publisher's going to be happy about that. I read I read Margot in all settings at all times and all seasons. <laughs> um, I think, um, you know, and I'm also someone whose version of a beach is a Sri Lankan beach, and I have a lot of thoughts about how people write about those. But I just think, um, like, when you think about what is able to contain a complex morality, like the kind of narrative form, like when you were thinking about writing this book, how did you, did you, was that a question that you were kind of engaged with? Like, like, I think it's really interesting to have the siblings playing off of each other, because, for example, when I think about sibling relationships, I think of my my brother, I think, was like the original co-detective of the world for me right in my childhood. Like, you know, it's a little bit like the clues that we've been given are this. What do you think is the answer? And yet often we were wrong or totally often we never found out until years later, which sort of contains all of the things that you're talking about. Yeah, I think most most young people have a fantasy of being some sort of detective. I mean, that's why books like Harriet the Spy were so popular. And I think that um, I'm sort of trying to examine two things that might seem opposite. One is the role of truth and what it what it is in all its complexity and how that intersects or overlaps with our individual points of view. So 
In my experience, every member of a family is experiencing a family differently. And one way, and all of us are experiencing the world differently. And so I try to signal that at the beginning of the boy in the field by having the boy say one word. And each of the three siblings hears that word differently without realizing they've heard it differently. And that that um, tension, if you will, really interests me the way, you know, is it 20 miles an hour or 45 miles an hour? Um, we only have our own perceptions, our own intelligence to help us negotiate the world. And we know it's faulty, but it's all we have. And, you know, where do you go from there? I, I find that a very perplexing question that's both moral and perhaps even larger than moral. Political. <laughs> Definitely political. Well, the, other, the other part of the book that is interesting that I wanted to talk about briefly uh, was the, the children are not all of the same race because one, one of the kids is adopted which I thought was a very interesting part of the book and, and like allowed you to, to also think about what is family? What, how does family get defined? How do we determine it? There's this very interesting scene where uh, that character is comparing his hand to his adopted mother's hand, you know, that returns again and again in the book. And so I wondered if you could talk about that element of identity in, 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 in light of, the, of this sibling relationship that you're developing in the book. Well, I have had a, I have a long-standing and um, sometimes adversarial relationship with the idea of family. <laughs> I, I mean, for there was a period when I was writing fiction that I determined I was going to have no one in my in my fiction who had a family relationship, no siblings, no cousins, no parents, no aunts and uncles. I mean, I was able to keep that for about two weeks and then I had to I had to fall back on family relations but I am interested in how a family can be chosen uh, I myself have a chosen family and a family I adopted um, and I also a couple of years ago discovered that I have people I'm related to which after 40 years of thinking I had no relatives came as an enormous surprise and needless to say, was both fascinating and an anticlimax. When I met these people to whom I was related, I didn't immediately feel, oh, some amazing rush of recognition or, oh, you are my soulmate or... Did they vote for Brexit? <laughs> well, they all happened to live in Australia, oh. but I tried to avoid any references to politics because while they seem very reliable on hating Trump. They did not seem reliable on their own politics. Um, so I just think that um, Duncan's quest, Duncan, the, the boy who's adopted, um, mirrors something that many people go through in different ways. Um, as we negotiate our family of origin and as we make an adult family that perhaps includes our family of origin, but usually includes many more people. So, Margot, as you are um, promoting this book, I was going to say traveling around the world, but that's not actually what's happening. Uh, zooming around the world, uh, talking about this book. What are you yourself reading this summer? I'm having um, a, a lovely a lovely summer of, of reading. For me, the pandemic has been a return to really long periods of reading in a way that I love. I'm reading um, 
you mentioned Britt Bennett earlier, and I'm reading her new book, The Vanishing Half, with great admiration. And I recently read um, Mega Majumdar's uh, The Burning. Um, I was very fascinated in her her humor and her structure and her plot. And um, before that, I was back in my Willow Cather phase, um, reading The Professor's House and The Song of the Lark. What about the two of you? I have um, both of the... I have both uh, Brit's The Vanishing Half and um, Mega's A Burning also on my nightstand. And also, um, well, um, I've been reading a lot of essays. So I have Kathy Park Hong's Minor Feelings, which is an essay collection about Asian American identity. Uh, and I'm also reading This Is One Way to Dance by Sejal Shah, which is another, there was a whole bunch of essay collections by Asian American writers that have come out sort of together. Sejal Shah has been a big supporter of the show. We see her on on social media all the time. Congratulations to her yeah. for that book. Yeah, um, and it's a terrific book. And um, and I think she was just on maybe one of our other, one of our sister podcasts. And um so all of these these four books sort of came out together, and I've been thinking about them as a group and just kind of thinking about how essays fit together in collections. Um, so yeah, Whitney, what are you reading? Well, I I mean I don't read anymore <laughs> because what do you I mean do? I read for the what show. Do you do? I I read for the show. I don't read for I don't have to, it's not like there's actually literally a physical time that I cannot I don't have a physical space to read. Period. So. When I the way I consume books now, I've discovered this app that allows me to download audiobooks from my library, and I and I listen to them when I walk and run, which I do in the morning and then in the afternoon. So, I listen to all of the Malcolm X biography by uh, Manning Marable, which is awesome. I've listened to Real Life by Brandon Taylor recently. Zadie Smith's essay. Oh, Brandon is a Iowa person, right? And uh, Zadie Smith's essay collection, Feel Free. Um. And The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay, which were all terrific. But I am going to say that the best, most amazing beach read that I would have been reading on the beach this summer, and I have never, ever read Stephen King. I just haven't. It's a hole in my reading. And I read The Dark Tower, and it's fucking great. And I loved it. And um, so I just finished. And I, I skipped ahead. I read The Dark Tower, which is like one of the ending books. So I've got now like Six more ahead of it that I'm going to try. Have you? Have either of you ever read that? I have not, but I did go to hear Stephen King talk. He was he co-authored a book with his son Owen, and the two of them were presenting the book, and I found him very, very funny and absolutely mesmerizing. He's a character in The Dark Tower where he's like the guy who's writing the story and there's many multiple worlds and there's all these light beams that are holding the world up and there's all this crazy stuff. And the, the main characters have to go save Stephen King so he can write the story so that they save the, you know, and like, and it used to think like this is ridiculous and, and silly, but it's not. It's really beautiful and like incredibly touching. And uh, I thought I recommend that book highly. I haven't read that. I um, have read some other Stephen King um, all of which was horrifying and really good. Um, and I think one of the reasons my tolerance for visual horror is low is because my tolerance for reading that kind of horror can be kind of high. Um, but yeah, Stephen King is, yeah, Stephen King is a great summer read. Margot, it's so wonderful to see you. Congratulations on your new book. We will recommend that all of our listeners and viewers go out and get The Boy in the Field and um, have a wonderful summer. 
Thank you so much, Wit and Sugi. It's a pleasure to be back on the show and to see you both and to have a really opinionated conversation with the two of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll look forward to having you back again. Congratulations. Fantastic. I'll write faster. (laughs) Please do. Next up, we're joined by Jaswinder Bellina. Jaswinder is an American poet whose works include the digital chapbook, The Tallest Building in America, and collections of poetry including Carrier Wave, Phantom Camera, The 44th of July, and most recently, a collection of essays titled Of Color. His poems have appeared in numerous literary journals and have been included in the Best American Poetry series. His essays can be found at the Poetry Foundation, McSweeney's, Himal South Asian, The Writer, and other magazines. He teaches on the faculty of the MFA program in creative writing at the University of Miami. Jaswinder, welcome. We're so happy you could join us. Thank you very much for having me. So Jaswinder, your collect- uh, collection of essays of color was published in June of this year, and I can't think of a, it, it, there's no way it could have been more timely. Uh, but you started this project long before the police murder of George Floyd, um, which happened not too far from where I'm right now. And the heightened political tensions of this summer. Can you tell us a little bit about how the project began? So the project uh, was actually more or less solicited by um, uh, Daniel Levin Becker, who is an editor at McSweeney's and had somewhere along the way encountered my work. And he had solicited um, an essay for a project, a a little anthology that uh, McSweeney's was working on. And in the course of doing that, he asked if I would ever be interested in doing a collection of essays. Um, and, you know, I, I said, sure. I didn't know if I had enough work. I, I had never really deliberately set out to write a book of essays. Um, but I had written many over the past roughly nine years. Um, and so this was about two years ago. And we, you know, one thing led to another as it does. And um, and the book got greenlit and we were ready to go. Um and it, and it's a, and a, it's a strange thing that it, it, it came out just before. In fact, it was scheduled to come out in March, and then due to the virus and a couple of things, we pushed the release date back to June, and there it was. It dropped in the midst of this incredible um, moment of social upheaval uh, grounded in um, this country's history of, of racial intolerance and injustice. And so... You know, it was just an odd, it was an odd moment because the book felt, as you say, maybe timely, but of course it was written and ready to go long before the actual events it was published into, which I think happens uh, across publishing often. But, but so that's a little bit of background on where it came from and how it landed when it did. Yeah, pu- timing in the publishing world is like, I don't know, it's like shooting an arrow that's going to land five years later and you have no idea like when it's going to, if it's going to hit anything or what's going to happen. Uh, but, you know, we're this is our summer, summer books, you know, episode. And if there's ever been a summer when people, the summer books are anti-racist literature, this is it. You know, I mean, uh, books like How to Be an Anti-Racist and White Fragility and so you want to talk about race have been on the bestseller list, which is not a common thing in America. We have been talking about debating and sort of kicking around this idea of whether or not summer reads are meant to be an escape from reality or not. Um, 
Whereas books like those, and including your own collection, feel different, like a long, hard look in the mirror. Um, why do you think people, well, I mean, one obvious reason why people are ready for this material now we've already talked about is that there have been generationally significant protests across the country on this issue. But are there other things that are you think are driving us to this moment, making these books what people want to read now? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, right? Because as you said at the outset, and as my previous answer suggested, books, the wheels start turning years in advance of their actual appearance. Um, and certainly the writing of them. I mean, my book, I, I started, as I said, the first essay I wrote for it was called Writing Like a White Guy. And I, and I published that in 2011, I think. So um, it, it really, I, I think what we're seeing is one of those strange moments in literary history where um, a, a bunch of books are coming out. One you didn't mention, but but is in this same category, Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong was another kind of um, big event for uh, Asian writers, um, you know, like myself. And it, it just, these books were in the planning phases. Clearly they were on the calendar. They showed up. Um, I think that on the one hand, there's absolutely a kind of desire for this conversation, if not necessarily among a readership, then certainly among writers. It, what it tells you, I think, is that for the last five, ten years, writers of color have increasingly kind of moved into positions where they're going to be writing these kinds of books. Um, fortunately, and maybe cynically um, a little bit, Publishing seems to have caught up to that trend that that there's this content out there, there is an audience for it, and so I'm guessing that a lot of these projects got um, got moving in a slightly different context, but just happened to all land at the same moment. And I think um, what that tells me is that this has been building over several years. the The fact that it's all happened at once is maybe a coincidence. Um, or maybe um, there really has been the, the beginnings of a kind of sea change in publishing where on the cynical side, publishers may realize they can make a profit off of this, but on the optimistic side, publishers want to give voice to all of these writers who are out here trying to talk about these issues. Um, as for when they landed and what they landed into, um, you know, it could be that the four-year context here is Donald Trump. It could be that the presidency of Donald Trump got publishers thinking about this and writers as well. Um, so maybe that, and on the one hand, you might say that what's happened this summer was an inevitable outcome of a Trump presidency. Um, but at the same time, I think that his election um, probably spurred a lot of these books into being. Publishing is always cynical. I've been reading this Malcolm X biography of my agent is part of an agency, um, the Reynolds agency, and Paul Reynolds, the agent, was Alex Haley's agent who was writing the autobiography of Malcolm X. So throughout this biography of Malcolm X that I've been reading, there are these Alex Haley like writing these letters to his to Paul Reynolds explaining why this book's going to really sell, you know? And every time something terrible happens to Malcolm X, he's like, this is really going to drive sales. You know, it's interesting to hear that in the background. So weird, and I, I will give absolute credit to to Daniel, who's who's a wonderful collabor collaborator as an editor on this. Um, he didn't have an ounce of that, you know. He really just kind of believed in the work, and he said, "This is a book that we should publish." And so I was at least spared. I don't. There were conversations, maybe somewhere in the background about that, but um, but yeah, I I I would be 
that is something you and I, I would love to hear everything you know about that, because that's fascinating to even hear here. And it's interesting the way in which um, I remember seeing on Twitter, I'll have to try and figure out where I where I spotted this tweet, but it was a bookseller saying that, you know, it was great to see these books at the top of the bestseller list, um, but also that some people had placed orders for these books and not picked them up, that there was a kind of virtue signaling. I wonder how virtue signaling is driving those sales. And so I'm curious to hear, especially since the first essay, you know, you published that first essay in 2011, and then it's one thing to have an audience that's interested in. It's another thing to have an audience that's smarter, right? And you're talking about the writers over this period of time gaining different kinds of energy and motivation from different political shifts in the environment. And I wonder how that has been for readers. Because, I mean, I think now, I don't know, the, the, the bestseller lists are saying that people are willing to pick these books up. But I wonder, when you go back and revise an essay for a collection, you publish that essay in 2011, do you think about your audience differently or are you sort of like, ah, my reader's smarter now than they were in 2011. I can edit. Yeah. Oh my God. That is one of the great terrors of putting out a book like this that, um, and I, you know, I, I think that I hesitated because I wondered one, like, doesn't everybody already kind of know all of this stuff by now, right? There's that like lingering in the back of your head. Um, I was a little bit relieved just going through the editorial process to find there were still claims that I was making, observations I was making that felt relevant and timely. Um, and at the same time, there's this other side of it where you do know that, like, and this is going to, I don't know how to quite explain this. I, it's the first time I'm trying to articulate this aloud, but there's a way in which your own work has become part of the conversation so that people may have taken some of your ideas and run with them. And now here you are being like, hey, here's this thing that I wrote and everybody already knows it because they've already read the thing and already moved on to the next thing. And so you're almost, it feels like you're plagiarizing yourself somehow in, the, in a weird way like this, that you're you know calling back to something and trying to remind everybody that, okay, this is where these ideas got going. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Over the course of nine years, um, readers, writers have read the kinds of uh, things that I've written that, you know, to a much greater extent, far more um, celebrated writers than I have written. Um, when I started writing, Ta-Nehisi Coates hadn't written his last two books, right, and published them. Um, there are books that have come out in the intervening years that articulate some things along the lines of what I'm articulating. And there are many books that have come out that articulate things that I believe in and, and want to talk about far better than I do, you know. So um, in terms of making edits, making changes, yeah, we tried to keep, we tried to update the book to 2019 um, and then 2020 happened, you know, and you, you just realize <laughs> there's no way to keep up. Um, you just put out an earnest thought and hope that it sticks. Well, let's talk about 2020 for a second, because, you know, we've been talking about the protests following the police killing of George Floyd. How, what has that experience been like for you? And, and when you look back on this project, are there essays that have different resonance for you? I, I, it's strange. I think that um, what has happened in the past several months, I am angrier than I have ever been in my entire life when it comes to this question of race. I, I find myself kind of really, you know, as much as I'm able to in my life, like kind of feeling that anger and kind of flying off a handle in a way that I hadn't 
and I don't think I ever had while I was writing these books, there was a way in which I feel like, and I talk about this in the book, that I was raised to kind of downplay these issues, to not make them central to my identity or to my life. Um, and part of that is the pressure of assimilation. You're taught to kind of fit in as best you can. Don't don't ruffle too many feathers. Um, I think what was horrific and different about this particular murder, because we know that there have been countless others for decades and decades, um, centuries even, um, is I think that video, that video that we all were subjected to and needed to see, there is something about that video that you get the sense that you're watching a man die right in front of you. And that is a very different kind of thing, I think, for a mainstream audience for anybody to encounter. It's different hearing, even than hearing about a killing, to actually witness something like that. And I think there's some kind of visceral response that is brought forth when that, when you witness a thing like that. And I think that that visceral response had a lot to do with uh, why these protests exploded in the way that they did. Um, but, you know, for for me, so looking back on this book, which is in keeping with my myself, my personality, which has always been um, a little bit more methodical, a little bit hesitant to be over-expressive of, of anger or any one emotion. It, I, I tend to be a little bit more analytical, I think. And, um, and so there is a way in which I look back at this book in the aftermath of what's happened and wish it could somehow capture now the things that I'm feeling this year. But of course, it can't. You know, the book is written. It is, it's done. Um, and so, you know, there, I think the events of this year have, um, have been tough uh, as, a, as a person, as a human, as a citizen, um, as a parent, as a, as a uh, person of color. Uh, but also as a writer, you know, how you how you feel like you can't write at all, um, and maybe that's okay, but um, but it, it it does do a strange thing, uh, you know, I, I, it, it spurs me to want to write more and maybe capture some of what I'm feeling now, but um, but yeah, I think that's the honest answer, is that it, it puts the book in a different light for me. One of the essays we wanted to talk to you about was uh, The Writing Class, which we all are involved in in one way or the other or about to start. Um, your book does a great job not only of confronting issues of race and poetry, literature and the arts, but also that of class, you know, and these two issues are obviously intertwined. Uh, you talk about, you know, being able to choose a more bohemian lifestyle in that essay and that it's something that's pursued poetry or literature itself out of desire rather than necessity I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the way those dynamics worked in your own life and the way that they have shaped the world of poetry. It's hard to say as a writer now, the way when we when we look back at the history of writing, at the history of art, the way in which we romanticize so much of it, right? And and certainly when we're younger, we're absolutely victim to that. Um, I, I remember I, I just adored uh paintings by, by Jean-Michel Basquiat when I knew very, very little about the guy um, in sort of the late 90s is when I first kind of encountered his work. And he, there's a movie, there's a, they made a biopic about him and in it, it 
delivers this very bohemian version of a life. What I didn't realize is that like until years later is that I think he'd, he'd gone to Juilliard. Like he came from a, a middle-class family who had put him into schooling and, and, um, and, and the, the film I remember touches on that a little bit. Um, but there is this sort of false narrative we get sold that, um, artistry and artists are sort of they need to be part of this sort of under classes working classes this even removed from the working class they don't appear to work sometimes even um <laughs> and when you when you know that you know you i'm just laughing because I've, I've known a several writers who very much you know cultivated a working class persona but when you looked into their backgrounds that was not what they were right they realized this is a, a thing that i could be right yeah, and then and I so I think there's a certain kind of beguiling narrative there, and it feels authentic, and um, and I think that's what I went in for um, as a as a teenager, basically, you know, um, and and I hope I can be forgiven for that as a teenager, but it's um, over time you learn several things about um, at least being a writer, and certainly being a painter or a musician, there's a ton of craft involved here, right? You have, there's a lot to learn, a lot to read. Um, the, the notion of the genius fully formed in isolation somehow is an absolute myth. Um, although that's the story we're often told, right? Uh, whether that's Van Gogh or uh, Michelangelo or Basquiat in painting, or, or even so many writers and poets, it seems like you know, that there's an idea that Frank O'Hara was just running around New York smoking cigarettes, like writing poetry on the back of envelopes. And I, to a certain extent, he may well have been doing that. But he also read a ton. You know, he was extremely educated. He learned the craft. And I think um, once you once you start to follow that path of learning the craft of it, you start to interrogate, where am I learning this craft? It's in the academy in the so-called ivory tower. And you, at least for me, I started to think about what it meant to be in that context uh, relative to this other narrative about the broke, starving artist. Um, and that's when it began to, you know, and it might be obvious, it's obvious to me now, but of course I'm 20 years older now, but um, it was the first time that it dawned on me like, oh crap, you know, I'm actually quite lucky and there's a lot of different kinds of structural things that had to occur a lot of sacrifices made by other people, my family, my parents especially, to to give me what we now very regularly refer to as privilege. And even as um, coming from a working class family um, who were immigrants, their working gave me that privilege. Um, and so, you know, once you start to question that, you lose, at least I lost um, uh, a certain degree of I don't know the, the the kind of carefreeness of it all. I started to to feel a little, a, a, quite guilty actually for a lot of years, and um, and so that essay in particular and others are are trying to unpack and unravel what is the origin of that guilt? What do I owe somebody else? What is it the consequence of that for my art, and then what is the consequence of that for art in general? But yeah, it's a, it's been a weird, you know. Anytime you once you walk into an MFA classroom, things get a little odd after that. I think. Just a little bit. I mean, the idea of, um, yeah, writers who are not from working class backgrounds performing a kind of, um, 
I mean, either a bohemian identity or a working class identity or both, um, that also feels very familiar to me. And I think about the ways that I might have done that myself. One of the lines from that essay that really stuck with me was when you said the only true job of the poet is to destabilize and expand language, sort of radical, uh, lovely way of putting it. You engage with this idea about access to poetry that we've just been talking about. And you're saying that those who produce and consume traditional poetry are largely one and the same. Yet there's a more accessible, less classical revolution of sorts happening with um, quote unquote, more accessible poetry, rap, Instagram poetry, um, perhaps spoken word. I mean, how do you see these things connecting or diverging in the future? What sort of path forward is there for that? Yeah. So I, one thing that I've always wanted to write about is, you know, we always talk about um, form and subject in poetry classes, like well, the, the difference between formal experiment versus experiments of content. And I think one thing we often forget to bring into that conversation is the role of technology. Um, and this is going to be a slightly roundabout way of getting to your, to your question, but like, we think about modernism as, oh, there was this philosophical shift in the world and therefore people started to experiment with different kinds of typography. But there was also a, a technological shift in the world that permitted those kinds of experiments with typography or whatever else, right? And so I think um, you just touched on Instagram uh, and I think of Twitter, I think of all these different um, social media outlets. Um, I think that 15 years ago, there were a lot of essays being written in major um, publications, and I touch on some of those in the writing class, um, about the death of poetry, right? And I remember reading articles in Harper's. Alexandra Petrie wrote a, a piece in the Washington Post about where are the poets? And this was at the sort of tail end of, or maybe in the midst of the, the W. Bush presidency. There was this sort of calling out of poets saying, where are you all? Like where, you know, there's all this political stuff happening and, and we can't seem, every time we read your poems, we can't understand them. At that same time though, spoken word slam was all over the place. It just wasn't leaving the bars and coffee shops that it was housed in. Um, and I think that it took the arrival of social media and YouTube and um, Instagram to suddenly give a, a venue uh, to some of those other voices. Um, the kind of poetry that I was talking about in that essay, um, writers writing to other writers, that is the MFA, the AWP industrial complex, right? That world that sort of existed for about 20 years um, from like the, you know, 70s into the 90s and aughts where um, you got your degree, you tried to publish a book. There were only a limited number of journals because you were, everything was by mail and it was like, get into Plowshares, get into Kenyan Review, get into Paris Review and you've, you've made it. You'll get a book and you get a job. I think that in the last um, 15 years or so, the arrival of technology into all of this has given a completely different kind of poet a platform. Um, and now what we're seeing is that platform, those platforms um, are destabilizing the ones that those of us who went through the MFA track are used to. Um, I don't have a lot of trouble with any of it. I'm, I'm kind of grateful for it. Um, but you're right, there is um, more and more what we might call accessible or a, a poetry that is as interested in the audience as it is in impressing other poets. Um, and I think that's what 
social media grants us. So, Well, wait, speaking of that, since this is our summer books issue and we're talking about poetry, which is, of course, insane to do in terms of nobody ever thinks of a summer book of poetry. But is there such a thing? Has there ever been such a thing? What, would there be an example of a book that ever functioned in that way? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's so funny. I think I've got on my desk uh, Ross Gay's catalog of unabashed gratitude just as literally sitting directly in front of me. And I think um, that's a pretty good summer reading book. In fact, I read it a couple summers ago. I feel like Claudia Rankine's Citizen might have done that for a couple of years. Like everybody was reading that book for a little while. I think that maybe we should give a little more credit to summer reading, that even if you're sitting by a pool, uh, you know, somewhere, you're still looking to be challenged. And so if you are, there is there is no shortage of uh, poetry books out there that... And you know, the other nice thing about poetry is if you are by the pool and you're keeping an eye on your kids or, you know, there's an activity around, you can easily read a poem, put the book down and walk away for a little while. It's a little bit harder to do with an essay collection or with a novel sometimes. I think also, you know, the idea of popularity of poetry is connected to race. And there was a time, you know, you and you write about that in your essay, Color Coded. You reference Ezra Pound. And I think you mentioned T.S. Eliot in that essay. I mean, The Wasteland is a poem that at one time everybody seemed to have read. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that essay and read from it, please. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, that essay was originally written during the 2016 election campaign. I wrote it that spring. Um, and it was a, a more or less, and I, I did for the book, I pulled the the section on Obama and Trump out. It felt kind of, it didn't, it rung hollow now, now that everything is history. Um, but I remember at the time, it was almost kind of a warning saying, there's something happening here with this Trump guy. And at that, that point, I think it was still in the primary season. And it seemed, I think to a lot of people, unlikely that he would make it through. And I think my concern was that, um, there, there is a lesson in poetry for politics. It does seem in my lifetime that one kind of rhetoric or, or, or mode of uh, presidency is always followed up by its sort of, it, it's, I don't know, it, it's opposite almost. You know, we, we went for soaring romanticism with Obama after the kind of fumbling, bumbling of George W. Bush. And then after enough years of that, nobody wanted soaring romanticism anymore. They wanted punchy directness, and that's what it. Trump reminded me of Ezra Pound. You know, he arrived like this furious modernist, just sort of. And it it doesn't hurt to note at this point that Ezra Pound is a fascist and an anti-Semite and a racist and all kinds of other terrible things. Uh, but he also was a prolific writer of manifestos, a prolific reinventor of the form. Um, and so that essay is trying to draw some of those parallels out, um, even as it sort of deals with my own experiences of racism in my own life. Um, but yeah, I'd be happy to read from it. This is where our confusion about Pound's dictum has landed us. Make it new is predicated upon a version of literary history that sees poetry as a kind of progress. The early modern begets the romantic, begets the modern, begets the postmodern. This view implies that poetry advances by making continuous improvements upon itself, which is as wrong-headed as understanding biological evolution as the improvement of a species toward a perfect end point. Worse, to commit to a normative and linear history of poetry allows for the dismissal of any writing that doesn't continue and thus implicitly endorse that history. 
any poem that isn't new relative to long-held beliefs about the old, that certain canonical poems are universal in their perspectives, for instance, or that the confessional speaker is distinct from and lesser than the philosophical lyric speaker, is readily disregarded. The new remains under the jurisdiction of whoever controlled the old, and no minorities need apply. But there isn't progress in poetry. There's only an art form adapting to the manifold pressures culture and moment exert upon each of us as poets. Better, then, to accept the evolutionary model of natural selection and understand that when context changes, our writing responds. Sometimes formerly dominant perspectives are selected out. Sometimes vestigial styles are selected back in. Complaining doesn't help. No matter how knowledgeably the complain complainants ground themselves in a history of the art, doing so is like asking a parrot to turn itself into a dinosaur, or claiming that returning to the geopolitics of the 1950s will make America great again. The tectonics shifted. The asteroid struck. That America is over. Thank you so much. I really like that passage in particular. Um... And was just, yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of writing and thinking about how time is one of the basic problems of writing. And um, this passage and also a conversation from our previous episode had, had me thinking about um, the false narrative of progress. Uh, nevertheless, we as a nation are trying to sail forward into this drunk year of 2020. Um, and it's impossible, you know, We've been talking a little bit about summer reading as a form of escapism and whether that's true or untrue, but it's impossible to escape the reality that in less than 74 days, the U.S. is holding its presidential election. I feel a surge of hope and nausea simultaneously as I say that. Um, central to those debates at this point is the issue of race and especially Kamala Harris's identity in the terms used to describe it, biracial, Black, African-American, South Asian, Desi, Asian-American, Thummel Brahmin have been interrogated and questioned. And I'm curious about what you think about those conversations that have been going on, especially intensely in like the past several days. It's um, a funny thing that somebody just wrote an op-ed about this in the Washington Post uh, and some a relatively major figure, I think in the Democratic Party, I cannot remember for the life of me who it was, but, um, but the point was basically like, we all knew that Biden had made it very clear he was going to select a woman as his running mate. He made it fairly clear that that woman would likely be a, a person of color. Um, and on the one hand, those conversations feel intellectual and like, yes, of course, that'll help his demographics and his vote count here and there, blah, blah, blah. And then it happens. And I will be honest, it it, it was, a, it's, it was extremely emotional. I don't know how else to describe it. Like you knew that she was that Kamala was the the, the front runner from the outset, um, kind of wire to wire in all of the five thirty eight and other places where they track these things. She seemed to be the favorite, but then the moment that it's actually announced, um, the gravity of that strikes you, and how personal it feels that she that she is desi that she is of South Asian uh, origin, that she is black, that she does stand for all of these different things, that she's Jamaican and, and here in Miami that, um, you know, there are communities here for whom that that's extremely important. Um, and so 
I, I think what it's what the selection of Kamala Harris as vice presidential, uh, well, hopefully the vice president um, demonstrates is that for as abstract as our politics get, for as removed as they feel, um, there is something extraordinarily personal about about it, about following these elections and following these gestures. And yes, everyone's being calculating and making certain decisions, but but those decisions actually mean something to real people. Um, and, and I'm one of those people. And um, as far as the conversation that has kind of ensued about is she more this or is she more that? Is she African-American or is she South Asian? I mean, to me, um, I think if you are, if this is personal for you, you can deal with nuance. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. She can be a lot of different things to a lot of different people, just as Barack Obama was. Uh, as a skinny brown guy from Chicago with a funny name, uh, Barack Obama meant a lot to me. Um, you know, and, uh, and he still does. And, um, and I think that the same can be said here. I don't think we need to reduce who she is. Um, and, and I think that that's what the, that when that narrative starts and that argument starts up, up about who is she, how do we pin her down? They're trying to, to make things less complicated, but let's leave them complicated. Let her be complicated. Um, and let our relationship to her, remain complicated. But I will say for myself, um, uh, yeah, I am uh, floored. I'm over the moon about that choice, even if I don't necessarily agree with every policy position she's ever taken and yada, yada, um, or just her, her presence means a lot. So there's a scene from another essay in this collection called My People that I loved and really wanted to talk about with you. It describes the relationship between your father and immigrant neighbor uh, they bond over commonalities, but without giving too much away, one of those histories uh, that they bond over is, is revealed as being quite ugly. Um, and there's this scene. Well, I can tell the story of the essay. You, well, you tell the story of the essay, but maybe you could just talk about the essay um, where, you know, they're, they're both soldiers. The, the, what was the, the immigrant neighbor was from? What country again? He's... He and his family were from Romania, um, but and he was raised by his uncle, um, and that uncle was, uh, I believe, drafted into the Nazi war machine, and, and he was, um, he became a soldier in the SS, um, which, you know, it's not just the Nazi war machine, I, you know, so I don't actually know the, the you know, the exact details, like, this could be some apologist perspective in, in, in retrospect, like, hey, we're in the U.S. now, it's 40 years later, we'll just tell it like this. But but he was in the SS, and that was um, the photo that the neighbor uh, came over and showed us. And we'd only moved into that house, you know, a couple of years earlier. We knew them. They were very extremely nice people, wonderful people. But, um, but yeah, one day after having lunch at our house, um, the following day that, you know, the neighbor, he had seen a photograph of my grandfather in full military regalia from um, from World War Two. And and uh, my grandfather, uh, my paternal grandfather was um, a subadar, uh, uh, which is the highest rank he could have achieved as an Indian in the in the British military. And there's this photograph of him in his turban and his it's black and white in front of a brick wall. And he's got his full uniform on. And the neighbor must have seen that. And um, and sort of as a gesture of well, neighborliness brought over a photograph of his uncle that he was so excited to show my father 
hey, you know, my uncle was in was in the army too, just like your father. Um, and so, you know, I was a teenager, barely, you know, I was maybe 13, 14 at the time watching this unfold in our driveway. And it was, um, it was just a memorable and strange moment. So you wrote, uh, my father and the neighbor gathered in a better version of this country, one based on a democratic erasure of the past and the creation of a common identity. There's a lot of lines to that that remind me of things that Ralph Ellison talks about, who's one of my personal favorite writers. But I wondered if you could talk about the balance, how to balance erasure that's necessary to move forward with an identification of the realities that the past and the present hold. It, it depends on the day of the of the week. There are times I wake up and I, I, I reread that and I think, God, that's utter, utter BS, right? Like, how can you forget um, any of this? Um, but at the same time, I, I'm descended of immigrants who have been kind of, you, you necessarily are forced to forget certain things and put them aside uh, for survival. And so I think what it sort of comes down to is what what do we want to do? Of course, we want justice. Of course, we want to right the wrongs of the past, especially um, those who for those who are victimized by those wrongs. But at some point, um, there has to be the, the step after conflict, the, the 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 thing that whatever we call it, reconciliation, um, you know, reacquainting ourselves with each other. There has to be a collective choice to to move forward together um and i think the the difficult thing at, at the national level is there there are so many of us with so many different complaints and there's so many injustices that it's very hard to figure out how to do that collectively as a nation but individually one-on-one -on -one, in driveways in bars and restaurants in neighborhoods um everybody can do that work uh, acknowledge their own flaws and mistakes and their own, um, you know, part of, of injustice and then work to correct them. And I think that may be where, where I was landing there. Um, there are times I think it's possible and times I think it's, it's not. Um, but I certainly hope, I hope it is possible to, to reconcile and move, move forward together. It's just 74 days. I feel okay. <laughs> um, Jesminder, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show to discuss this book, which I really, really enjoyed. Uh, congratulations and thank you so much for your time today. Uh, my thanks to you both. Thank you for having me. Thank you for reading. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This episode was produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman, and we want to thank our University of Minnesota intern, Dylan Mietinen, for his work on this episode. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can also find the video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel. For all of that great stuff, what if you went to Apple Podcasts and gave us a rating? We'd appreciate it. We'll provide links to all this stuff in the show notes, and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. 
happy summer reading. <laughs>